One of our pupils, Susan Foreman, came into this yard. Really? In here? Young man, is it reasonable to suppose that anybody would be inside a cupboard like that? Mm. What do you say, Perry? We can go on nature walks, have picnics, and jolly evenings around the campfire. Gentlemen, I've got news for you. This lighthouse is under attack, and by morning we might all be dead. It's a brilliant idea. It's so simple, only you could have thought of it. Oh. I'm the doctor. These are my new best friends. I'm the doctor, and if there's one thing I can do, it's talk. This is the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast with your host, Eric Branson. My dear, I don't think he's as stupid as he seems. My dear, nobody could be as stupid as he seems. Now drop your weapons, or I'll kill him with this deadly jelly, baby. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. On this podcast, we travel all of time and space discussing Doctor Who in a completely random order. Today we land at episode 7, The Two Doctors. More like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. I'm going to need a swap team ready to mobilise street-level maps covering all of Florida, a pot of coffee, 12 jammy dodgers and a fez. An apple a day keeps the, uh... No, never mind. Allons-y. I'm sorry? It's French. Well, let's go. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. I'm Eric Gulbranson, and you have landed at episode number seven, otherwise known as the episode where we review The Two Doctors, that being the 1985 three-part television story starring Colin Baker as the sixth Doctor and also starring Patrick Troughton uh, repraising his role as the second Doctor. So it is a multi-doctor story and the last multi-doctor story i believe of the original run of the show um so we don't get another one until um it's a time crash and uh anyway well i should uh, probably get to introducing my panel before i start to <laughs> discussing which uh but uh yeah so i have three illustrious panelists uh, with me tonight and I, I say panelists like we're actually doing something official here but we're just uh, here to talk a little Doctor Who uh, friends and uh, uh, co-hosts tonight I have with me uh, Mr. Asad Kiski as uh, often is with me here on the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast how you doing tonight Asad? Pretty good always happy to be back Good. And joining us again on the Police Box and Junkyard podcast from the Doctor Who Collectors podcast is Mr. Larry Van Mersbergen. Larry, how's hey, it going? Hey, great. Great to be here, Eric. Always happy to talk Who. Yeah. It's always a good time. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and joining us for the first time, and I hope not the last, on the Police Box and the Junkyard podcast is Mr. Matthew Kressel uh, of the, what is it, Warp Factor blog, amongst many other things. I'll let him. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing these days, Matthew. Uh, doing a little bit of anything and everything. Warp Factor, I uh, do a lot of reviewing on there, especially of Classic Who and Big Finish. Uh, also, I pop up occasionally as a reoccurring host on the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast uh, run by Adam Pearson out of the UK. So that tends to be a, a lot of what I'm working on at the moment. And I have some other non-Doctor Who projects in the work as well, but I think I'll save that for another time. Okay. Well, yeah, sounds good. I'm glad to have you here. And uh, we're acquaintances uh, from Chicago TARDIS and, and via Facebook. And I'm, I'm a big follower of a lot of the stuff you write for Warp Factor and reviews and um, really appreciate all the stuff. Uh, well, the great writing and, and Doctor Who material that you create. So, um, yeah, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. When you travel around as much as I do, it's almost inevitable that you'll run into yourself at some point. 
come a long way for you. Naturally. Don't expect any thanks. Perhaps you should see a doctor. Are you trying to be funny? He's not the doctor I know. I am so, Jamie McCrimmon. I was being put to death! Ah! The collapse of the universe has started and nothing can stop it. Sultanas are barbarians! Release them into time and every civilized people in the galaxy will curse your name! I think your doctor's worse than mine. Oh, crumbs. Eternal blackness. Kill him! So, to give you a little bit of a quick introduction of the story, uh, the two doctors from the back of the uh, DVD box, which I have here, Region 2 um, DVD, uh, when investigating unauthorized experiments into time travel aboard Space Station Camera, the second Doctor and Jamie come under attack from the warlike Santarans. Elsewhere, the sixth Doctor and Perry also decide to pay a visit to Camera. They find the station abandoned, but discover Jamie, half-crazed, hiding in the ducting, and he tells them that the Doctor has been murdered. The Two Doctors was written by um, probably, arguably, the most popular Doctor Who writer, and that is Robert Holmes, uh, directed by another uh, veteran of the show, although this is the last time he would direct for uh, Doctor Who, and that's Peter Moffat, obviously produced by John Nathan Turner, who at this point had been entrenched and already a longtime producer on the show. Um, yeah, and is uh, has an interesting cast of kind of crazy, wonderful side character. Well, I mean, wonderful is arguable, I suppose, but side characters as well. Uh, definitely interesting to say the least, memorable. Uh, let's go with that. I just wanted to start with like, um, when did you first see the two doctors and what were your, let's go like with briefly, what are what were your first impressions of the show? Is it something that you instantly liked? Is it something you grew to like, et cetera, whatever. Um, and let's go ahead and start with you, Asad. Yeah. Uh, uh... First time I saw it was probably only a couple of uh, years back, and it was just it was pretty, pretty okay. I thought it was I thought it was kind of a below average uh, run, but it was part of uh, season twenty two, which wasn't all that much great shakes as far as I was concerned. Anyway, so it was nice to see uh, Patrick Trutton and uh, Fraser Hines, but um, yeah, overall I was uh, not too impressed by it. Yeah, Matthew, how about you? It was actually the first Six Doctor story I saw in 2007 when I got into Classic Who in a big way. And I had come into the show through the Five Doctors. I had loved the Three Doctors. And I thought, the Two Doctors, this is going to be great and wonderful. And not so much as far as I was, as I was concerned, both then and now, I'm afraid. <laughs> Larry? Well, actually, I go. I think I go the furthest back. I saw this uh, the third week of March, nineteen eighty-five. Uh, we had a pirated copy uh, taped off PAL television. Uh, we had to watch it in the dark because it flickered very badly. But at the time, we thought it was the best thing to see because it was new who to us. Um, seeing Patrick Troughton um, on the screen, especially when it started in black and white and faded into color. And, 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 you know, of course I was a lot younger back then and I rewatched it last week and my 
you know, definitely uh, not the same story I watched 30 years ago. Uh, so it's, uh, but I definitely remember the newness. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll throw one in there. I remember in the room, um, the three of us that were in the room watching the show was myself and Mr. Gene Smith was there as well, um, watching this in 85. We had just started Bundles from Britain as a partnership a month before that. So we were, we were, getting these tapes in and uh, we had made some connections and this was pretty exciting to get new Colin Baker, especially since in our local network, Colin Baker was not even a blip yet. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's always interesting to hear, to hear your take because you were somebody that was following it kind of in real time yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, as much as you could back in the, <laughs> back in the day. And yeah, that sounds exciting to actually because you've described it before like how how much of a lag there was between like bbc mm -hmm. broadcast and like the chance when you guys would actually get a chance to see it so it must have been exciting to see something that was relatively fresh i mean that was something that was coming out of it it was because uh, you it um it as as we started getting more involved in doctor who back then and, and technology was so primitive that you know like i said the only way we could get it was somebody would tape it off television in england and mail a tape over and then someone here with a pal machine setup could put it on a tv and then set up a camera in front of the tv to record it onto ntsc which produced a slight flicker because of the signal difference and so some of them were really nice quality actually but this one wasn't too bad uh the color is lost a little bit in that but uh you, you did get to see the um the umbrella for the first time and some of the things that really came out in color and of course the beautiful sets in Seville but we were just thrilled to death to see Patrick Troughton with Colin Baker and seeing a multi-doctor story especially after you know just seeing the 20th anniversary one a few years before that and getting getting this episode right after it stopped I believe the third episode aired March 5th uh, in 85 and then we got it like two weeks later so we saw the whole thing, all three episodes and four, and they did show them in that original 45 minute um, format. Yeah, that, that leads me to actually one of the things I wanted to talk about that's so interesting about this little kind of micro era of Doctor Who, and that's that they changed the show format to run, you know, 45 minutes. And do you feel, um, and we'll talk to get everyone's take on it, but do you feel like the 45 minute format worked for the show? Did it Did it hinder it? Did it... Did it help it? Did it make, you know, no difference at all? Like what was, uh, especially let's start with you, Larry, because what seeing mm -hmm. it there in, in 85, mate, was it the first time you saw the 45 minute format? It, it was. And at first it, it didn't really phase us because we had already been used to seeing Doctor Who in movie format for 90 minutes. So seeing 45 minutes at a time right. kind of didn't bother us uh, at all. Although um, late, you know, when I watched it the second time, I thought this could have been a six parter. They could have done six 30 minute episodes, but I know that uh, John Nathan Turner was playing with the format to try to improve audiences. And um, I guess there was feedback in England to say, why can't you do it like the Americans and show it? And, you know, cause they seem to like the way we did it here. And we were like, why can't you show it in episodes? Like they do it over there. So you can't make anybody happy. But uh, the first yeah, time we saw it, it just kind of, it, it flowed on screen and we really, you know, we watched the entire thing in one sitting. And so it was mm -hmm. just, we didn't even notice the time. We were just glued to the set and everything was, was important about that show. But that's, uh, you know, the 45 minute thing didn't really bother me at all because that's just how it was. Yeah. You got what you got, right? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Asad? I didn't have that. The 45 minute, minute format uh, worked okay, especially since they were never like, 
stories that were completed in just one uh, one episode. So it would yeah. always be kind of the equivalent of a four-parter. So that gave right. them plenty of time. And I guess it, that's probably why they didn't really change even the pacing of it, even though the you know they had like 45 minutes each episode, but the pacing kind of didn't really change. Right. And yeah, I mean, and like Larry said, they were working, I guess it was season 20 or 21 where they had experimented with doing it on two consecutive nights, like Monday or Tuesday night or Tuesday mm-hmm. and Wednesday night, something like that. So I guess they're just working on how to improve their figures. So yeah, the 45 minutes was not an issue with the episode. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Matthew? Does it work for you? For the first time I watched it, because I, I had been used to watching 25-minute episodes from all the other classic Doctors. And I remember it was the, one of the first times I looked at the clock while watching a Doctor Who story going, wait a second, there should have been a cliffhanger five minutes ago. What's going on here? Um, part of the reason why they did the 45-minute format this season was that the previous season, uh, Resurrection of the Daleks, had been done as two 50-minute omnibus episodes because of the 1984 Olympics. And it hadn't hurt the viewing figures any. And this is when Michael Grade and Jonathan Powler tried to figure out what to do with the show before they decided to get rid of it. And the 45-minute format was, was their choice. Though, from what John Nathan Turner says in his memoirs, which are available on audio from Big Finish, they originally were said, well, we want 50-minute episodes. And John Nathan Turner came back and said, well, that works out great, but that means there's an extra episode of screen time across the season we're going to need another episode's worth of budget. And they said, never mind, 45 minutes will work. <laughs> but I, in, in <laughs> watching it the first time and rewatching it uh, again, I, I was sort of conscious of the fact, and I, I'm conscious watching all of the stories from this season. I do sit there and I watch the clock and I keep going, there ought to be a cliffhanger about now. There ought to be a cliffhanger about now. And I don't think anybody maybe with the exception of eric sayward at the very end of the season with revelation of the daleks i don't think anybody figured out that pacing how to do that because watching it it's and particularly i think bob holmes having written for the show as much as he did you look at it it's like he's building to a cliffhanger and then no cliffhanger happens and it is kind of this anti-climax and then you know you do finally get the cliffhanger and it's like finally yeah and I forget if this this probably wasn't the first. I think the just the start of the seasons when they changed over to the forty five minute yeah. format. But I do remember on doing the original watch through, and that's when I would have seen this uh, in order um, on the original time that I watched through the whole series. Um, being pretty jarred by the forty five minute format, and that's because you're just so used to that twenty five minute and the kind of serialized cliffhanger format. And they certainly still had the cliffhangers between episodes, but. Um, I felt like something was just off about the pacing. Suddenly it felt like episode for episode, it was just a little too long or like that the the stories weren't paced quite right for the time slot. Um, Had they switched over fully to like, I mean, obviously they don't have the foresight for this, but fully into like a modern kind of television show where they're going to tell the story all at once. It certainly would have worked, but um, this was essentially a four part story stretched to a six parter and then jammed into three 45 minute episodes. And um, I do think that's one of my gripes with this is that I feel like the pacing, especially like it opens the, the, the first five minutes of this or 10 minutes of this are very exciting. Cause you're, you know, it's oh, this, the return of the, the second doctor and Jamie, and there's all this, you know, stuff going on and the pace is very rapid and Patrick Troughton just like, you know, 
jumps right back into the role and just kind of lights the screen mm-hmm. up and uh mm-hmm. it's and then all of a sudden you're you get to the main crux of the plot where he's you know he's captured by Dastari and, and um they you know that reaches out psychically whatever the sixth doctor gets you know um feels the disturbance or whatever and uh then the the pace of the doc, six doctor perry story slows down to like uh like that the first episode's probably the one where i feel it the most and it's just kind of like i like everything they're doing bob holmes actually gives the sixth doctor a lot of really great stuff to do and a lot of really great dialogue um more so than almost anyone else that probably wrote for him um that sans there's there's a couple of moments in trial of time lord that is there he's got some great stuff but mm-hmm. um but in general like there's just like moments when i feel like 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 matthew said like you're kind of like checking the time and saying okay well you know are we going to get you know what's what's going to happen here we're going to get into this like there's a whole lot of screen time and not a whole lot of story in this mm-hmm. one i feel like mm-hmm. they could they could have shortened it a little bit but and you can tell um, that too because robert holmes novelized it as well for target and the target novelization is far better paced than the tv version but that's also because mm-hmm. he's able to go in and fill things he can you know there's all kinds of random asides and whatnot which are wonderful to read but there's no way to do that on screen and they also don't have to, like you, maximize their time in Seville. To... Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right, or adhere to a budget. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's supposedly this was very, very... Um, there was a lot of really terrible things going on in the world of Doctor Who behind behind the scenes, like Matthew mentioned, some of them with Michael Grade, essentially mm-hmm. sabotaging, sabotaging the show, I guess. That, um, that might be too dramatic of a word, but I'll stick to it. Um, but... And, no, you, uh, no, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, the uh, they, I think they were on location in Seville in the middle of the shoot when they got the word that the show was going to be going onto a hiatus after their season mm-hmm. was over, and so that's got to be like big time, you know, a big time downer when you're on location, you're out doing this show, the show that's you know supposed to be a sure thing, you know, it's been on since 1963. It's this great kind of british institution at the time and you get word while you're out there working on it that oh yeah by the way we're going to put the show on the shelf for a little while um which essentially is saying we're going to cancel this show as soon as we can like (laughs) you know clear clear out the way to do it but Mm -hmm. um so yeah a lot of production issues also the famous uh fraser hines always tells the story at, at tardis about the um uh, the wig yes. problem mm-hmm. that they had on location. So Patrick Troughton and I believe Jacqueline Pierce was also their their wigs were um, lost somewhere, never to be seen again. Like they never ended up turning up. And, the Starry's and wig they, too. Yeah, they were both uh, they were both lost in shipment. They had to remake the <laughs> wigs on set. And Jacqueline Pierce's wig in the first place had to be redone because she wasn't the first actress cast for the part uh so the wig was made for somebody else and so when she took the role they had to redo it anyway so they did it twice for her and uh yeah there were loads i mean i'll just throw a quick story Uh, i first heard about the two doctors from a high school friend of mine who had just come back from a vacation in seville and he said he was at a hotel when he was in an elevator with a film crew and so he said oh are you guys hollywood and a, a, a gentleman said no we're better we're british (laughs) <laughs> and from his description, the gentleman that spoke was Patrick Troughton. So th- that was pretty cool. He said he didn't know he wasn't a Doctor Who fan. He didn't recognize him, but he thought he had to ch- share it with me the minute he got back. And I said, oh, there's going to be an episode with Patrick Troughton. That was the first I heard about it before Doctor Who magazine broke the story. So um, but yeah, I also heard that they had a 
bad bout of stomach flu. Uh, Fraser Hines talks about being sick as a dog for a week in a delayed production in Seville. They had eaten at a bad restaurant, probably Oscars, but uh, yeah. that's uh, <laughs> the one from the show. <laughs> yeah, it explains. Yeah, that's good. We'll, yeah, we'll it use explains why the restaurant owner gets yeah. stabbed. Now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> that, that, you you know, and that's another plot line. I think they could have gotten rid of Anita and Oscar were completely yeah. dispensable oh, yeah. in this entire yeah. to, to bring even introduce them to have them in there to even go to that restaurant was completely you could have saved at least 20 minutes of time. Getting yeah. rid of yeah. them and gotten rid of one right. of the more unpleasant moments. In yeah, the, yeah. Uh, that, getting getting a getting bad a acting of... and aside. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Getting a little ahead of myself, but that actually is a great segue to what I want to talk about next, and that is like the cast and characters of this show. And I guess the first thing I want to talk about, we'll get back to some of the um, more eccentric or um, maybe useless characters, but uh, the um, I really want to talk about the small amount, unfortunately, of screen time that Colin Baker and Patrick Troughton share. And um, but. What was your impression of the two of them working together? First of all, the two of them working together in the story and also the the way that they played together as the doctors. Um, let's uh, let's start with you, Asad. What what kind of uh, what impressions did you mm -hmm. have of that? I guess I hmm, I didn't really think about how much uh, how much how little time that they have uh, together. Uh, it was one of those. I again, I don't think anything really jumped out as such it was uh obviously good the way that they could pick up on what um, the other one was doing which um, obviously makes uh, makes sense um it's a little uh wasn't sure why the i guess the sixth doctor is generally irritable so yes he is a little irritable towards <laughs> the second doctor um yeah, I mean, I thought that the actors worked fine off each other and um, the characters uh, worked fine off each other. So, yeah, not, nothing that really I thought jumped out that I can think of. Larry, any, <laughs> any thoughts about the two of them or, or either of them specifically in this story? Yeah, actually, this is uh, probably one of the best. Uh, for me, I thought it was one of the best moments of two doctors working together, especially towards the end of the story, um, because Patrick Troughton completely embraced his old character and was completely himself. And Colin Baker was actually a little bit more toned down and as, as he was told to this season uh, to be a little bit friendlier and a little more witty and things like that. And he kind of made that go. And I and also like the change of the costume, too, was also helpful to get him out of that ridiculous coat. Um, but Patrick Troughton really carried a lot of those scenes because being of being not just the second doctor, but a veteran actor of great distinction and was able to kind of pull some, you know, being, you know, being older, much older than when he was playing the doctor. He was still able to embrace that exactly the way he was would have done it if he were in the series back in the 60s. And um, and Fraser Hines added a lot to that, too, because he, yeah. you know brought Jamie back the way it was supposed to be brought back. But I thought they worked great together. There was some great chemistry on set. Um, and uh, a little, um, just one more aside too, that later in November of that year, I got to go to TARDIS 22 and um, Patrick Troughton and Colin Baker were on a panel discussing working together. And that was a, an eye opener for 
those of us that were lucky enough to see it that said they just really had a good time they actually palled around in seville they got to know each other because they really didn't know each other that well they hadn't worked together before and this would be patrick troughton's final appearance as the doctor in the series and uh of course then they, they thought you know patrick or you know, jonathan turner said oh yeah we've got lots more in the in the in the hopper but none of those ideas came to pass um but there was a lot of great discussions about how they worked together they they did talk about the perils in seville but they said it was just a lot of fun and some of the dialogue is improvised and some of the actions are improvised and it was just a great um insight to see it especially after, since i just saw the episode of uh, a few months back yeah matthew any any thoughts about the two of them I mean, they bounce off each other well. I mean, that's the great thing about the multi-doctor stories is that especially the chemistry between the various doctors. And, of course, they've been established with uh, Troughton and Pearlie and the three doctors and really, I, you know, carries over here. My only sort of real thought about it is, and this is more the script's fault than it is anything to do with Troughton or Baker, is not only do they get not get the opportunity to interact with each other a lot in the story, but fundamentally, if you're going to do a multi-doctor story, the point of it is that you give the old doctors their moment the chance to shine and one of my problems with the two doctors is is that as great of a writer as robert holmes was it's basically a multi-doctor story where one of the doctors is superfluous for 75 percent of the running time you know troughton spends most of the story strapped to a table trying to be witty with some tarans and anything else and it's you know, don't get me wrong it's great to have troughton back and troughton is one of my favorite doctors and at the time I first saw this, I, him and Pertwee were fighting for top spot. Um, but the problem is, is that, you know, Trump doesn't get a whole lot to do besides be strapped to a table until the last half of the last episode. And it does feel in retrospect. And to be fair, they didn't know it was going to be his last time doing it. I'm sure, you know, if opportunity had come around, he would have done the 25th anniversary story. Um mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. Silver Nemesis would have been much better as a result, but that's that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you're going to bring a doctor, past doctor back, give them something to do. And the problem, one of the problems with the two doctors is it doesn't give Troughton enough to do. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm going to echo a lot of what you guys are are saying, and that is that um, it's criminally underdeveloped. Uh, to they don't have enough time on screen together. The time they have on screen together, I really thought they were great. Um, I liked how uh, Grumpy Sixth Doctor brought out Grumpy Second Doctor. Like at first he's kind of jovial with him, but the second he's, they start sniping at each other, the Second Doctor shows that he can play, he can play, you know, Grumpy uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. just as well as uh, as Colin Baker can. So just the way they kind of play off of each other is great, the back and forth. And I can't imagine, like from a, um, I mean, maybe from a writing standpoint, you don't you don't see it, but from a production standpoint, from direction and 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 John Nathan Turner, why they didn't see an opportunity to, for them to spend a little more time together. Maybe it had to do with, you know, Patrick Troughton, you know, being a, and it's not like he was incredibly old or anything. I mean, he was, he was still well within his means and he does a good amount of running and jumping around anyway. So mm -hmm. um, I don't think they, they were, they would stress him out by having him do a little more, have a little more screen time, but. Yeah, his heart um, condition hadn't been diagnosed yet at the, at this point. It was another yeah. year before he was told to take it easy. It's kind of yeah. so. I almost, yeah, I almost wonder how much of it's down to the rewrites to the script that happened, because, of course, yeah. one of the things they talk about in the production notes, particularly on the DVD, is that this story wasn't supposed to be in Seville originally. It was supposed to be in New Orleans. Right. Yep. Uh, until the, was it the, I think Lionheart was who they had struck the deal with, and that had fallen apart. 
and Bob Holmes went through two or three rewrites, taking them to different locations in different cities before they finally settled on Seville as somewhere they could actually afford to go while still being in a foreign location. Hmm. So I wonder how much of that is Bob Holmes rewriting the script again and again and losing bits of the script as he's going along. Yeah, it, it does seem like there's a little bit of more more than usual. There's a little bit of like three different stories just kind of packed together. And obviously there are other Doctor Who stories that act that way too. But usually the, they successfully are, are brought together, at least in like the third mm-hmm. act and, and everything. And this one doesn't really like... Honestly, like you were talking about the Oscar and Anita characters being generally pointless and being there. Uh, maybe they're kind of comic relief, but it doesn't even end up being that funny. I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, well, No, then, the, the Santarans yeah, were also yeah, useless in this, too. They could have done yeah. without them. And, and yeah. it's yeah. like, you know, the Santarans should have been battling Anita and Oscar, I think. But yeah. uh, that's... Well, even just setting it in Seville, there's no in-story reason why they've ended up in Seville other than they've ended yeah. up in Seville. Because right. that's where we could shoot. That's yeah. where we yeah, got, it's, yeah, it's yeah. not like, you know, City of Death, where, you know, the Mona Lisa's there, the Louvre's there. It's That's the reason it, to put that story sense. there. Right. Mm-hmm. Arc of Infinity with Amsterdam, they at least worked Amsterdam into the script. And in in it feels like so it, if if you didn't know better, it did it does feel like they threw a dartboard, you know, they threw a dart at a, at a map and said, okay, that's where we're going to set the story. It could have been set in the English countryside in some village somewhere. Mm-hmm. For yeah. all the difference it really makes to the story. Yeah, yeah, it do, it doesn't at all, and they, they didn't. All they would have had to do is give it some reason, picked a historical location, and given it some significance or whatever. But right, uh, yeah, so. I did want to talk about uh, the kind of the they're not the main villains, but are they the main villains? I guess they're the main villains, the um, Andragums and uh, mm-hmm. played by which is a shock guy and Shasin uh, played by John Stratton and Jacqueline Pierce. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the Andragums has been genetically altered into a you know higher, more advanced kind of creature by uh, Destari, who is an old acquaintance of the doctors. Um and a leading, a leading profession or a leading uh, mind in the art in the realm of genetic, uh, genetic enhancements. I don't know. Um, they don't go too deep into it. It's a lot of like uh, one-liner <laughs> info that you get. So, anyway, um, some certainly interesting performances, especially from John Stratton. Uh, wanted to get your take on uh, what you guys think of the Andragums, and I'm. Like you said, the Santarans, I'm, I'm, one, I'm great. I'm happy they pop back up, but really, what are they doing in this story? They, they're just kind of there. So I'm going to say the Andergums are really what we want to talk about. Um, what do you think, uh, Matthew, of, of, of the Andergums in general, kind of their their place as a Who villain, and also of, of John Stratton and Jacqueline Pierce and their performance in the show? It's kind of interesting in a way that, you know, they're presented as being this, as being kind of subservient to all of the scientists and whatnot who are on this space station. And yet they end up being the ones who are actually pulling the strings and Chassini is manipulating the story and not the other way around, which is what you'd kind of expect. And, you know, the way that Bob Holmes sort of uses them to talk about, you know, talk about vegetarianism and everything else, which is kind of the one of the subtexts running through the story. In terms of performances and whatnot, I mean, it is, it's full on John Nathan Turner era of casting, of doing stunt casting and bringing in not necessarily people you would have cast in those parts, you know, if you were any other producer. Um, 
John Stratton, I mean, he had a background as a dramatic actor. I mean, he was in the BBC version of Quatermass in the Pit, you know, nearly 30 years before this, playing an army captain and doing very well in that. But he just, he is well and truly over the top in this one. I mean, he really is. The way they sort of play it, uh, you know, it's meant to be menacing, but it just comes across as camp. And I think that's true to a certain extent of Jacqueline Pierce as well. I think she comes across better of the two. Uh, though you, I, watching it, I couldn't help but think she was playing a sort of toned-down version of Serverland from Blake 7. Yeah. Uh, which was, let's be honest, that's the whole reason John Nathan Turner uh, cast her, the same reason he cast Paul Darrow in Time Lash, which is going to follow this in a couple of weeks' time on TV. Hmm. Um, they're not the greatest two villains ever but they're not the worst two villains ever either uh but they're definitely not members of the hall of fame by any means Asad, what do you think of of andragums i thought the andragums were actually interesting because with i think robert holmes does give some idea about their society just with a few lines here and there i think that uh shock eyes performance actually because they keep pointing out that the Androgums are basically a totally like, um, seems like they are a society without any inhibitions. So in some way, it kind of makes sense that he's like totally out there. Um, I guess the problems I had with it, though, was that for one thing, the doctor is really incredibly dismissive of them. Yeah. I mean, he really, it's like, mm. you know, he's got that line mm -hmm. about, oh, I don't have time for a dead androgum. It's like, yeah, that's not, it's a kind of a weird and dismissive um line to throw out there and i don't know it just it comes he talks about them as if they you know they're so dangerous so deadly so but they're essentially like the servant class on the space station so these are things that don't necessarily gel together um yeah he he talks about them like he talks about daleks yeah like and we've never had any like history with andragums right this is the first time they've ever popped up in the you know in the lore and um but yeah, so it's the first thing out of many things of this that are a little bit like unsettling about this story. And that's that the doctor is like borderline dismissive of this entire species just based on whatever unseen kind of experience he has with them. It was also and I, kind of odd to see um, Patrick Trutton seeming to try to palm a knife while he was talking to <laughs> Shock Eye. <It's> like, okay. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> Let's not forget at the climax of this, uh, you know, three-part series that the Doctor is totally cool with pretty much cold-bloodedly murdering yeah. one of these creatures. So <laughs> yeah, that just does like those are the things that don't really sit well with me about right. it, and it's just um, yeah. and, and it's not because it's a, bad. Yeah, it drops it's, a James Bond one-liner in the process. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, something that's a little more. Uh, Larry, what do you have uh, about Andragums? Do you have any well, thoughts? I thought John Stratton owned it personally. He he <laughs> was definitely shuck eye of the crunching grid the whole time. <laughs> and I I do I I think um he he really puts it out there about what the species are about. They're about consuming mass quantities of food. And so when he's working Jamie over with the meat tenderizer and doing, you know, getting ready to prepare the, you know, talking in cooking terms, it's like you could have had a cooking show going on at the same time, you know, I'm going <laughs> to and now I will flail the Highlander, you know, and stuff like that. And, and that's because he would talk about what he was going to do. It's it's kind yeah. of it's like the common villain in, in Bullwinkle. I'm going to talk about what I'm going to do, but I'm 
oh, I got to do something else. I got to put the knife down and go chase somebody else. <laughs> it's like, this could have taken, uh, okay, fine. You know, but the, yeah. like I said, there were so many different things in the story that kind of like, well, wait a minute. You know, that didn't work. But yeah, the Shuckeye was good. Um, Jacqueline Pierce, I, I know just from reading some notes that she had never seen Doctor Who before. So she had a hard time following the story and kind of getting into that. But I thought she did a great job with the role. She's a great actress. And, you know, I'm a big fan of her and Blake Seven as well. So um, she did a really nice job. Unfortunately, she yeah, has I... henchmen about as competent as the ones in Blake Seven, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. the servitu servitudes or servitudes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't have any good luck with her minions or her henchmen, right? So. No. <laughs> um, yeah, she she was fine in this and, and and i think she's the kind of actress that can walk into just about anything and be pretty good and you know she's she's just very watchable um but i got a little bit of a feeling like she was doing a little bit of a sleepwalk through this i didn't give her much to much to do and um yeah, it, again it, she came off kind of borderline like savalon anyway and um it's interesting because I love her so much in, in what I've seen of Blake seven, which I'd need to still finish that series. But um, mm. the, uh, and this one, I'm just, it's kind of, she's, she's fine. I, I wouldn't, you know, criticize her in any way, but she doesn't stand out the way that John Stratton does. I mean, I, and I'm going to go ahead and agree with Larry that he's absolutely fantastic in this. Mm. <laughs> like he is the one, although I also agree with Matthew that it's very over the top, but it's uh he's just he's such a memorable character and i think if anything out of anything in this that that's the character that i'm gonna you know walk away and be remembering afterwards so i've, I've actually i've done shakai in restaurants just in the past okay. and this is our tally <laughs> <laughs> keep the change i thought that that was exactly just he because he you know again androgon being one of the lowest forms of life according to the time lords just owned a, a waiter with you know yeah. here you go <laughs> got it <laughs> yeah i and that's the one thing about the androgums that or the, the the whole situation with the doctor both the second and sixth doctor and apparently the time lords themselves seems kind of like border like it, it obviously shot is kind of a disgusting creature right he's just like obsessed with food and he's just kind of like but they were so dismissive of them as an entire race, just like no hope whatsoever. And usually the doctor is the opposite of that. Like he's even right. the guy that is going to give the Daleks another chance. You know, he's not, he's, he's, you know, do I have the right? He's not going to wipe them out. He's, uh, you know, going to, it just, it seems out of character for him to be that dismissive of them and their like lack of any, obviously I don't want to use the word humanity, but lack of any, you know, decency or potential as a species. Right. Um, shock eye might not be the guy, you know, that you go to, but you know, to dismiss Androgums in general is just seems a little, a little harsh, especially since we've never heard of them before. But yeah, I mean, the, right. the doctor comes across both doctors and this come across as very elitist mm -hmm. in a way that the doctor doesn't usually come across. And it's very, it's very strange not so strange perhaps coming out of the sixth doctor but it's very strange coming hearing patrick trout and say those words right. i mean it's not yeah. even as if uh, all the androgums had joined chessine and her plan you know it seems like <laughs> right. she only had shock right. the others probably <laughs> just got killed along with everybody else on the space station mm -hmm. right. right yeah we don't even know where the rest of the society is like there's there's two of them <laughs> like that's where we're right. basing our entire i mean obviously the time lords are familiar with them in some way but um for the doctor to be uh you know going along with some like ancient time lord racism or you know is uh just seems a little odd but 
anyway, just to, to keep kind of keep talking about Shock Eye and his his kind of role in this story, uh, I would I did want to talk about the kind of obvious uh, critique of um, food processing, the food industry, and kind of the endorsement of vegetarianism that is very very heavy handed in this. Uh, and in fact, to, to kind of usher us into the topic, I did want to mention. Um, in her book, The Doctors Are In, um, our, I, I, I think our um, mutual acquaintance and my sometimes editor, uh, Stacy Smith, question mark, writing as Robert Smith, question mark, actually credits the two doctors as being the reason that she is a vegetarian. And um, <laughs> it's uh, interesting that um, it, not, it, it's interesting, first of all, that it, it that it kind of exists that way coming out of Robert Holmes, somebody who I don't believe was a vegetarian. It's, it's interesting that that's, yeah. you know, it's so strong. It, it's so heavy handed with the um, kind of disgust at like the, the you know, meat and meat processing and the way that carnivores are kind of, you know, salivating over their prey and all this stuff that basically a shock eye is a personification of all of those things. Um, but also it's linked to, um, the violence and kind of the grotesqueness of this story. Mm. Um, just kind of want to open it up and just, just kind of a general topic. I don't have a specific question, but do, how does that that strike you guys uh, with the kind of strong vegetarian um, message, but also the, the critique that this story is overly violent and kind of disgustingly. So uh, let's start with you, Asad. What's have any thoughts along those lines? I don't know. <laughs> Um, okay, well, I guess just in terms of <laughs> basic continuity, if the doctor is uh, so in, enamored by going to vegetarianism at the end, why does he have such a problem with Mel later? <clears throat> so, carrot <laughs> right. juice. Point. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's uh, I actually kind of the same word felt fell into my brain about that. It's very grotesque. Um, a lot of the things that are going on in the um, episode and I mean obviously there's lots of death all the time in Doctor Who but there's just something kind of uh, you know just about an old lady having her neck snapped by an invader in her house just casually and you know uh, again we've mentioned Oscar being stabbed and it's it's all just it's all just kind of nasty shock eating the uh, eating the rat um, <laughs> Poor uh, field marshal Stike gets really, it's almost like escalated the amount of suffering that he goes through from a knife in the leg to the acid. And then when he comes out of the, the transmat, he's all leaking everywhere. And then he gets pulverized and you have a leg flying on. So it's like, it's like, uh, and, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it, I, I, that's one of the reasons that the story doesn't really, isn't all that enjoyable. It's not exactly a fun romp. Let's see a shake here. What, what do you think, Matthew? What's your? I it's. I was on another podcast a few months ago talking about case of Androzani, and I made the comment about Androzani that Androzani doesn't at times to me doesn't feel like Doctor Who. It feels like Blake Seven, which Robert Holmes had been writing for, and I I get that impression again when I watch this that it almost feels like Robert Holmes has forgotten which show he's writing for, <laughs> and it has that kind of very stark. And it has that very kind of stark quality that Blake Seven could have. And not that Blake Seven, I think, at least from what I've seen of it, 
uh, having admittedly not seen the entire run of the show, it could be kind of dark and it could be kind of gruesome in places. And that certainly is the thread here. And I remember watching it, having no knowledge of like seven, of course, at the time, watching it for the first time going, what show have I tuned into? You know, sitting there watching it, going through these scenes, and especially, you know, Oscar getting stabbed at the restaurant. I'm just sitting here going, where in the world did that come from? It's just, you know, and Assad's right. You know, death happens all the time in Doctor Who. I mean, horror, fang, rock, warriors of the deep, you know, the, the Doctor and the companions are the only people to walk out of those stories alive. But it doesn't feel gratuitous and it doesn't feel gruesome because there's a story reason for it. And right. the and I don't know how much of this is down to Robert Holmes or what I suspect is the case, how much of it's down to Eric Sayward, because Eric Sayward was notorious for this kind of thing, and him going over Bob Holmes' scripts and doing rewrites as he's going, it just a lot of it just feels gratuitous and unnecessary, especially from a story point of view. Like, oh, that Oscar is a really obnoxious character. Let's let's take him out at the end. <laughs> like, uh, I actually expected that whole that whole thing to be a gag the first time I saw it. I expected him to like because he was such a coward and he was kind of like I expected him to be acting like he was dying and suddenly you know pull open he's got like a a, a bill tray or something where he has not been stabbed or you know he's actually just fine, and then he just like conks off. To, I'm like, whoa. Like, where did that come from? Like, why did we just kill that guy? Like, you know, as annoying as he might have been, it's certainly an innocent, uh, unnecessary death that just written in there for what reason? I don't know. <laughs> it just, uh, um, uh, Larry, how did this strike you? Well, both when you first saw it in, uh, in 85 and um, as you've revisited it, um, did did you, like, how, how would you react to the kind of heavy handedness of the, imagery which i feel feeds into the kind of vegetarian propaganda no not really but you know it's interesting we 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 discussed that when we first watched it it says does this sound to you like a big commercial for vegetarianism because not only did the doctor have that final role but one of the lines that i always remembered was after the meat tenderizing incident when he says oh these creatures don't feel pain the way we do and kind of reinforcing mm -hmm oh <laughs> you know kind of making and then i don't know if you recall when they read the list of things they ordered from the restaurant including two suckling pigs and all that you know it was all meat dishes uh -huh. that uh 16 pigeons or whatever they you know and the two lobsters you know all the, all the stuff they read off and so there was a lot of that and then of course in the kitchen when they first arrive he grabs a, a zucchini and, and tries to attack shakai with it so there was a lot of imagery of vegetables in oh, this yeah. uh in this thing and so it was uh in, including uh <laughs> I, you know, I hate to even say it when they poured the acid on the Santara and he started to look a little bit like a head of lettuce. So <laughs> it was sprout, kind of sprouting and kind of sprouted. But, but I, I remember that being clear. And when I saw it again, it's like, yeah, you know, there's this big thing about, you know, meat is bad and the meat industry is bad and chefs that slaughter their animals are bad. And Shockeye was just, you know, this is how we do things on our planet. You know, we, we, it's better when they're alive because Dastari says, shouldn't you kill them first? Oh, no. <laughs> and making that whole thing drawn out on this preparation yeah. of of how we do things. And I'm like, OK, yeah, that's a it, little over the top. Um, yeah, but heavy, I, and, heavy handed and, doesn't even describe it. <laughs> oh, I know. And, and, <laughs> and I know a note about Oscar, you know, the first time I saw it, definitely, you know, I thought, what is this guy? And then later I read he hated doing the show. So he really did not want 
he hated being on set. He hated the story. And so that, that ending where he like kind of pretends to die was, you know, like almost community theater <laughs> acting and, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he took a while to do it. So it, it just kind of was like, okay, this guy, we, like I said, you could have cut him out of the story in the first place, but the actor didn't want to be there in the first place. We'll say that they literally like used Chekhov's gun with the Oscar cyanide. Yeah. <laughs> or, or the, yeah, that that's a point too, that uh, Colin Baker's doctor happens to limp towards the same area where Oscar left all of his stuff to yep. conveniently find the cyanide. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, okay, that caught me the second time I saw it. The first time I thought, oh, that's, that's really clever how he did that. I'm like, no, that was pretty accident. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, it's oh. pr pretty contrived, but that yeah. this is certainly not the only Doctor Who story guilty of that. But, no, definitely um, not. Definitely yeah, the, not. The, the the whole kind of vegetarian angle, like I actually thought it was kind of clever from a concept wise, but the the uh, the dialogue and some of the just imagery and the things that they use just is such a heavy handed like like a people got really upset with the the most recent series episode orphan 55 because the doctor had that kind of almost straight at camera like lecture about you know global warming or something which didn't right. really bug me at all honestly but um the uh this one it comes across like almost in that same realm of heavy-handedness if not more so like but the, the thing that was confusing to me is not that you can get that out of it because if you you could watch this whole thing and not get that out of it i'd be a little more worried but um it's that it came from somebody who I don't, I guess I need to read a little, I thought I read quite a bit about Robert Holmes, but I, I don't know what his dietary preferences were necessarily, but I don't think I read anything else or have seen anything else of his that is so um, just kind of on the nose about, you know, vegetarianism and, you know, meat is murder or kind of eat the, just the stuff that we're getting out of this. And not that I have any qualms on, um, about you know people's preferences or with food or whatever it doesn't uh, make a, a big difference and, and it's I, I'm a person that's kind of flirted with some some I've never gone all the way to vegetarianism but certainly I've tried to kind of cut a little bit of the meat out of my diet because I do have some moral conflict with it so some of this even speaks to me mm -hmm. but it's still really weird <laughs> like I guess yeah. that's what I'm getting yeah. at <laughs> um, so I guess let's move on from that and just kind of kind of the general like icky feeling this whole thing gives you at times like this uh, whole story and move on to kind of homes uh, the other things in home script that are kind of interesting um i'll just throw out one more thing that's slightly oh, maybe sure. kind yeah, of borderline absolutely. icky which is that i mean we have another alien that's really interested in perry but at least it's not for salacious reasons this time <laughs> that's right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> She kind of gets that treatment. Well, I mean, because she's getting that treatment from the production staff, I think essentially is the problem. But Perry, Perry as a companion often gets treated this way. And uh, at least, yeah, he's got different different uh, motives for his uh, desires. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, so Robert Holmes writes some interesting things into the script that I just want to touch on really quickly that kind of add two little kernels to kind of time lord mythos that i don't think they ever like touch on again and and i don't know in the whole like plethora of you know extended universe stuff that there is out there i i've never come across it doesn't mean it's not there it probably is but that is the um genetic disposition that time lords have to time travel um and the um synoptic or um 
symbiotic relationship that time lords have with the TARDIS machines. Um, both are proposed in this um, story and not very well developed, um, just kind of like thrown out as a line. However, the doctor, there needs to be a time lord present in the time machine that they've developed, the TARDIS-like th uh, thing that they've developed um, to steal time travel. Um, and he has to kind of, uh, they need a time Lord in it to kind of, um, get it started per se. So they have this genetic disposition. So what do you guys think about that? And why do you think, was it, was it a really bad idea? Is that why it never popped up again? Or is it, uh, it's just, it's just kind of weird that there's, there's these giant kind of like time Lord, um, mythos kind of bombs in this thing that never come back again. And I, I guess my suspicion is that JNT didn't really care a whole lot one way or the other, and that it just kind of fizzled, but, um, Let's, uh, let's start with you, Matthew. What, what, any thoughts about that? And it, it's okay to say no if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, it kind I mean, it, it kind of felt like they were pandering to the fans a bit because it's kind of like, okay, we're, we're going to do this so we're going to add to the Time Lord mythos a bit because it seemed like every season there for a while, it was, here's another Time Lord story. Here's another thing that ties in with Gallifrey and the Time Lords and so forth. I mean, it's it's not really developed. I mean, the thing we also have to keep in mind is that Robert Holmes originally developed those ideas for what became the Five Doctors when he was the originally commissioned writer for that. A mm -hmm. lot of that stuff came out of what was supposed to be the Six Doctors, the idea that the Cybermen were experimenting on the Doctors trying to get time travel. And I get the impression it was probably more developed in that version of the story than it was here. And that perhaps part of the problem, too, was that basically Robert Holmes was handed a shopping list of elements, and he decided, well, if I'm going to incorporate all this, I might as well reuse this while I'm at it. There's references to it that's popped up here and there, especially in some of the novels and the early Big Finish stuff as well. But on the whole, it's just not particularly interesting, let's be perfectly honest. <laughs> Um, it doesn't really, it doesn't really add much to anything, and it's, you know, there, it's essentially a story built around a couple of throwaway references, and not in a good way. Yeah, yeah, I have to agree there, um, Larry. Or do you have anything to? Well, I kind of thought they touched on this symbiosis thing in Modern Undead a little bit when um when the doctor had to give up something and then tegan and nissa started aging one way or the other way when the tardis was traveling forward and backward that something with the doctor was necessary to to work the tardis so that might have been i mean obviously long before this came out but that might have been something that was kind of adds to that mythos a little bit um, but again, that's one that's kind of disappeared after the two doctors, but I think they needed that little plot line because of the, you know, the, the Potts and Reiner, um, Karts and Reiner or whoever was, uh, <laughs> was running the, the little triangle box that they needed, um, that they were going to actually operate on the doctor to find that nuclei, to put it in the time machine when all they need to do, all you've got to do is just prime and use the machine. So they probably, they, they were they kept kind of inventing it as they went along. Um, but it's, yeah, it's one of those things. I think it stays with the two doctors. And then after that, anybody can operate the TARDIS because that's pretty much how it was after that. Well, I'm kind of disappointed that they refer to it as Rassilon's imprimatur rather than the imprimatur of Rassilon. Uh, <laughs> because I thought that was how they're supposed to name everything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and but yeah, it, it just seemed like a kind of a, silly idea i mean in the same season they had the cybermen traveling through time and 
Mm -hmm. They certainly didn't say anything about them having a (laughs) Time Lord um, biochemistry to operate their machine. And the Daleks have been traveling in time since the 60s. So, so there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, supposedly, it, uh, it just as a side note, um, talking about Bart Robert Holmes borrowing ideas from his own script for uh, the twenty or the 20th anniversary special, um, it sounds a little bit like when I read the, what his initial pitch on that was Cybermen mixing their own genetics with Time Lord genetics to be able to uh, create a race of Cyber Lords. Sounds like somebody else recently has been borrowing a few ideas from that script as well. Mm-hmm. But we'll just uh, move on from there and talk about the two doctors. But um, so... <laughs> Because we're all, you know, um, pretty mega Doctor Who nerds here, um, I did want to talk about a famous fan theory that is kind of originates in this episode, and that being the Series 6B uh, theory, that is that the Doctor at the end of the War Games was not actually immediately forced to regenerate, but actually is taken into the employ of the Time Lords um, what would later become to be known as the Celestial Intervention Agency or the CIA um, and sent on, you know, missions and continues to, to be the second doctor working for the Time Lords. Um, a lot of the ideas behind this theory, um, first of all, come with the not like perfectly um, continuous split between um, the end of Patrick Troughton's run and the beginning of John Pertwee's, and also the um, just kind of the in, in incongruities here with the Doctor appearing older, Jamie appearing older, which are obviously because the actors are, have aged. Um, but it's a neat fan theory because it fits into all these different places in the in the series and all these different places in the lore. And it actually seems to, and I'm sure we're mentally retconning all of it, but it actually seems to kind of check out in a lot of ways. And now that I'm a little more familiar with what that is, and I went back and revisited the two doctors, I'm having trouble like thinking of it any other way. Like I'm having trouble thinking that Bob Holmes wasn't kind of playing around with this already. Now, obviously we as fans have added a lot to that, but Mm -hmm. um, what do you guys think? How familiar are you with season six B and uh, how, what do you think about it? Like, is it, is it something that, um, may actually be well and especially with the, the most recent series of the show like is it something that we're uh this is gonna come up and again um that's like three questions but feel free to answer <laughs> any of them <laughs> whoever wants to jump in just uh well uh, i'll go ahead and jump in there because i know that this is something that came up when the five doctors when Troughton said how how do you recognize me they erased your memory he wouldn't know that unless that was past the war games um and so that started that whole thing and then of course in the two doctors the same kind of thing that he was employed by the time lords to be the celestial intervention agency and tom baker's doctor hints to that too back in the invasion of time so there's there's a lot of that floating around already but it's certainly you know when i know john nathan turner was always asked about continuity and he said it's a time travel show anything can happen you know that was his answer to all of that stuff and of course Troughton not getting sent directly home makes a little bit of sense because we don't know how long it was before he was found guilty and sentenced that you know that's something that bring, comes up in that whole theory and of course he could be okay well, well we'll give you jamie and you can go do this or you know whatever the thing is but then you eventually you will come back here because that's the point of the remote control 
um, unit that's installed yeah. to recall the TARDIS back to Gallifrey, so then we can send you to Earth and uh, exile. So he like, kind of knows maybe it's it's running out, but I'm going to do these little things and maybe I'll get time off for good behavior. I so. like to think somewhere in his in his you know missions or adventures that he somehow found a way to get Jamie back. Like, like uh, yeah. Unfortunately, this is Fraser Hines' final appearance as Jamie in the in the series. So, so no, it doesn't happen as of anymore. yet. As of yet. As of yet. Yeah. That's true. <laughs> Although I, I I know I asked Fraser and he says I I always I, I always make the phone call. <laughs> <laughs> I think if anybody is ring is actually making that phone call, it's probably it's him. Fraser. Oh so, yeah. yeah. It's like, I, I, I could come back. I can do it. <laughs> And, and and don't get him started about the uh, the Highlanders audiobook and he didn't get to narrate it. <laughs> so <laughs> he's still upset about that. Apparently. <laughs> I love Annika, but I can do it better. <laughs> I'm Scottish. <laughs> any other any other thoughts, Matthew? You have any? Well, I, I'm going to be terribly self-promotional here and admit that about seven years ago, I wrote an entire fanzine article on, on season 6B. Nice. And... Uh, its origins to where it pops up and everything else. And funnily enough, Bob Holmes didn't come up with the idea. Uh, TV comic back in the 60s, in the in between that sort of big six to nine month gap between War Games and Spirit from Space, did a whole comic run in there of Troughton being uh, running away from the Time Lords and getting stuck on Earth and becoming a, a celebrity solving mysteries until the Time Lords finally catch up with him and force him to regenerate. Um, wow. So it was some, some foresight yeah, on their part. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, it was, and Bob Holmes, I mean, if you read the info text on there, there's an interview with him from one of the fanzines at the time he was writing this, where he was basically going, oh yeah, Troughton's doctor was off running errands for the Time Lords all the time, and they were hypocrites for putting him on trial, and I decided to base a whole story around this, and, you know, that was, I'm sure, news to a lot of people back in the day, uh, but I mean, fans have certainly built onto it. I mean, Terrence Dix, funnily enough, I mean, one of the other, you know, great writers of classic who just ran with it in the spinoff fiction there's a big second doctor segment in the novel players uh published by bbc books but especially one of the last of the past doctor adventures which he wrote world game is entirely based around season 6b Troughton getting to run around and indeed the end of that story the end of that novel with has him looking slightly older because he's done all of the stuff in that in that novel and going to the CIA and going, I want my own TARDIS back. Well, we're going to put it under remote control. That's fine. I'm getting it back. I want Jamie. What do you want me to do next? And it's directly a lead in to this story. So, you know, the not only have the fans built upon it, but the actual, you know, Terrence Sticks of all people built on top of it. And if if you if you're a classic Who fan and you need a ringing endorsement of something, Terrence Sticks is the person to go to. I think. <laughs> he also Terrence Sticks also in the Target storybook. Uh, he also wrote a short story there, which is specifically a season six B story where the second Doctor is taken out of his cell, sent on an assignment, comes back, gets his mind wiped, and sort of. The end of the story is the same as the beginning of the story where Time Lord comes to the door and says, okay, it's time for us to go and do something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the okay. only the only fly in the ointment with it is the mention of Victoria at the beginning. Right. Yeah. And if it wasn't yeah. for the reference to Victoria, I I would have no I would have absolutely no problem with it. But the reference to Victoria is very strange. Puts it puts it before war games for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. which doesn't make any sense because there's some things that get said in the dialogue, particularly by Jamie. So it's 
I suspect, again, I don't know, Ian Levine is still the continuity, the unofficial official continuity supervisor. And I wouldn't be surprised if he slipped a note to Eric Sayward and Eric Sayward went, okay, Ian, I'll do this just to shut you up. But creates a whole, creates a whole nother mess in the process. But I love season 6B. It's, it's the greatest contribution the two doctors makes to, to Doctor Who as a franchise is it gave us season 6B. Yeah. Asad, do you have anything? Any? I mean, I think I would be more time. inclined towards this being a six B thing if if Jamie wasn't there and like totally seems to be totally familiar with the Time Lords and uh, everything else with that. <laughs> I think if it had just been Patrick Troughton on his own, then maybe I could uh, reconcile that as being a six B thing. But uh, I think we see Jamie being sent back to his. I mean, we see him being sent back to his time in uh, the War Games. We do right in front of Patrick Troughton. So well, that well, one, kind of... one, one option too, is that they bring Jamie back and the doctor knows the future and just tells Jamie that we've left Victoria somewhere. <laughs> and because otherwise he, you know, if you go with the continuity guide, it's like, well, there's a problem because we don't even know about the time Lords yet. Right. It hasn't been. Mentioned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So this must be before fury of the deep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's, that, it's always said to me when, and, and I, and I got it even stronger upon rewatching it. This is only my, I think it's my third time seeing it. Um, that a lot of these ideas are really solidly in there. Like, I'm not sure Bob Holmes like checked himself on every little bit of continuity, but like, oh, he's he certainly <laughs> thinking about like, he's thinking about this, you know, I guess I can't guarantee this, but it seems to me like he's thinking about this being a continuation of the second doctor story rather than a snippet out of, you know, a previous part just right. seems that way to me yeah. because yeah, exactly what Larry just said. Jamie seems to have all this knowledge that Jamie did not No version of Jamie that we had before had this knowledge. So it's almost like they brought either the doctor somehow got Jamie back into the fold. He's become familiar with the time Lords cause they've been running these errands for them or whatever. Um, but yeah, anyway. the Victoria line is a problem then. Yeah. Unless yeah, they're like is. Is. wiping Jamie's memory each time, every time as well. It's like like yeah. the is, guard at the yeah. Black Archive of Unit. <laughs> <It's> like... <laughs> yeah, which is which is possible. I mean, it's also around this time that Doctor Who magazine does the World Shapers comic, which has got its own you know continuity issues, but has a has the Sixth Doctor Perry and well, well I'd throw sure to that meeting an older Jamie who, despite having had his mind mm -hmm. wiped in inverted commas, knows exactly who they are and says, "Oh yeah, the Doctor taught me." Some tricks so i would remember things so yeah who knows I read that one as well so yeah <laughs> who knows um and also they so to add on to this there's a new new click of, of people and i think this is even a bigger stretch but just uh there's a new group of people adding to the 6b theory that the joe martin doctor could possibly be a post troughton right regeneration and a continuation of the series 6b or season 6b um, storyline so she seems to be the renegade doctor who's you know wor was working for the cia da, 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 da. anyway they've worked that into it yeah. i actually kind <laughs> yeah. of like that actually like cheered me up a little bit and i went oh ooh, like i could go with that like i don't think that's what they're gonna do but you know i could go with that like anyway. that would be a bit but of a deep dive fun, it's, <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a fun theory but i still think joe barton is pre-hartnell myself yeah, especially <laughs> after what we just saw last season. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think she's pretty. I think she's pretty Hartnell. 
I, how do we explain the TARDIS? I, I, this is for a different show, yes. but still. Like, <laughs> I've, that's yeah, what yeah, that's, about it. This is another <laughs> hour at least. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm gonna, I, mean, I guess yeah. I'm going to nip that in the bud and we'll, we'll jump back to uh, <laughs> the two doctors. So uh, but yeah, so we're get, it's getting a little, a little over an hour here. So we'll start to wrap things up. I want to go around and get everybody's kind of final thoughts on the two doctors. And like we do on the show every time, uh, let's, let's go ahead and give it a grade. And uh, today we're going to be grading them out of it's always out of a five scale and i try to come up with something that's unique to every story this today we're going to do out of five um andrigam warts i believe we are rating <laughs> so um let's uh start with you matthew what's your final thoughts about it and um give us a grade on what you think of the two doctors it's it's you know there's it's got a good cast don't get me wrong it's great seeing Troughton and heinz back in their parts uh, especially for uh, we fans of classic who on the other hand i really think between robert holmes scripting it and peter moffat directing it it should be a far better story than it is it's got its moments but it's it's the weakest multi-doctor story of of classic who in large part because it's a multi-doctor story where one of the doctors essentially is superfluous to requirements for most of its length so i'm gonna give it two andrew warts out of five uh larry let's do let's go with you next i'm gonna give it three andrigum warts out of five just because uh you know being the final appearance of patrick Troughton as the doctor and giving a great performance um and again you won't see the santarans again till the santaran stratagem that's the last appearance of yep. them um i thought you know it was not the best multi-doctor story they could have done you know and i of course I, I saw it weeks after it aired and we were just excited to see it to start with but it's not the best story and uh i've you know i'm sorry to say and also just the way that they um you know we didn't even mention it but the way they open up the story with uh perry wearing a bikini top on the beach um kind of <laughs> starting that off and 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 of course that was also controversial at the time but I thought, you know, Patrick Troughton, you know, when I got to shake his hand a few months later, I thought that that was the, you know, the definitive performance. It was said that we lost him shortly after that, but uh, a great a reappearance for the second doctor. Asad, what do you think? Uh, I'm really not a fan. It's a flabby story. It's a nasty story. Um, so I, yeah, I would kind of have to go with maybe 1.5 to two, um, Androgam warts. So, and then Patrick, Patrick's great. Patrick is, Troughton is always great to see, but yeah, it's not enough to save this. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm going to, again, I'm going to echo a lot of that sentiment. It's, I really think the cast is good uh, mm -hmm. in this. Uh, like, like you said, Patrick Troughton's great. He like jumps right back in. Like he, he doesn't miss a beat. He's just the second doctor. We didn't get a chance to talk about uh, how great he is as the Androgome Doctor as well. He's just hilarious. Um, just reminds me of how talented and wonderful Patrick Troughton was. Um, and so, so that that there's a lot to like there. Um, it doesn't necessarily make every moment of this perfect. Um, the show is always elevated by location shooting. So even if it doesn't have any point to being in Seville, it's still nice to see them out and about and in a different location. It, it, it always gives it a, you know, lends the show a little more credibility because they have, you know, uh, locales and such a uh, little different, but this is a really weird Doctor Who story. There is almost no other Doctor Who story like this. 
which in a way makes it kind of a cool thing to watch because it's so unique but it's also kind of like i guess Assad, your word is the best it's kind of a nasty story it just like including right down to the doctor's overt racism and openly uh, murdering somebody in 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 the climax of the show it just uh so it's not all bad but those things i think detract from it too much for me to like give it like a glowing review um the doctor the sixth and second doctor work together i think we talked about this but work together really well i love the moments they're together mm -hmm. i love the like bickering kind of like old married couple bickering they jump into like right away and um just play off of each other so well and i, I think larry mentioned earlier that the, some of that was uh um kind of improv or they got to goof around with it and i think you can tell that they were just having fun so they're those are like really great moments so i would hesitate to say like if you're a classic who fan don't watch the two doctors because it's got two doctors it's a multi-doctor episode you gotta watch it right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. just you know maybe don't set your expectations sky high uh for it so I also love that to me, like the rewatch of this really confirms in my in my fanon, my my you know, head canon really confirms the season six B stuff, which I which I eat up. So I love all of that. Uh um yeah, so I think I'm gonna go with like three point five out of five Andrew Marts. It's a it's a run of the mill. Like it actually it's not run of the mill at all. It's really, really weird and it kind of is memorable for all those reasons it's just not all good but it's not all bad either so i'm gonna go mm -hmm. right in the middle of the road but um anybody uh have anything else before we close close out on the two doctors any final um we didn't mention the old woman in the uh in the uh seville and uh, i just want to mention she was a, a frequent guest star on more common wise as a comic actress uh, okay and so just a just you know, she she lived a long life and uh, she passed away, sadly, but she had a long career of acting. And I thought she didn't do much, but we always for, we always forget about her in this story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it she she's murdered pretty grisly as well? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Yeah. By, she's, uh, yeah. She's just another one of the story's many casualties. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. So like we do at the end of uh, every episode of the Police Box of the Junkyard podcast, we're going to fire up the uh, good old randomizer and pick out what Doctor Who adventure we're going to. Uh, talk about next time and uh, let me go ahead and uh, hit the button on the randomizer there and looks like next time we're going to be talking about the eighth doctor audio adventure big finish audio adventure phobos which is from the first mm -hmm. season of eighth doctor's adventures episode four of that season so uh, I would uh, like to invite everybody listening back to uh, join us to talk about Phobos next month. And um, with that, I think we're just about out of time. I would like to thank my uh, guests for being here. Um, always a joy to talk to you guys. Yeah, I hope you will all come back and join us again just as soon as possible. And I'm going to keep doing one of these things every month. So uh, let me know whenever you want to come back and uh, see something you're interested in. You're always welcome. So thanks for being here. Sounds thank good. You. Thanks for having yeah. us. Thank you. Thank you. And to everybody out there listening, I'd like to thank you once again to listening to the Police Box and the Junkyard podcast. And uh, if you do have any feedback about the show, it uh, please send us an email to the Video Junkyard podcast at gmail.com and just put in the subject line Police Box, and I will uh, know which podcast you're emailing about. So feel free and send any uh, feedback that way. You can also join us on the Police Box and the Junkyard podcast group on Facebook. 
um, and just get in on the conversation. This is like, as I've always told, tell people, it's a community podcast. So I'll always put a call out for people uh, to join us here on the podcast. So if you are you know, listening and you feel like you just have so many opinions about Doctor Who, like we all do, uh, and you want to get on here and ha have a chat with us, we'd love to have you. So I consider it to be a, a community podcast and I'd love to have anyone that wants to be here. So um, yeah, on, on that note, I'd like to thank you once again for joining us and have a good evening. Thanks again for listening. I hope you will consider joining us next time for our discussion about a Doctor Who television story, as well as our discussions about Doctor Who audio adventures, both audio books and audio plays. Also, we will be doing discussions of Doctor Who novels, nonfiction books, and other fun stuff. Until next time, I have been your host, Eric Branson, and this has been the Police Box in the Junkyard podcast. Special thanks to all of our guests and contributors. The Police Box in the Junkyard podcast is a proud member of the Video Junkyard podcast family and can be found on most major podcast providers including SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Podcast Addict, and Spotify. Doctor Who theme composed by Ron Grainer, arranged as Doctor Who retro theme by Neon Frontier. All rights to Doctor Who and its related materials belong to the BBC. Hello fellow time travelers, I'm Tony Witt with the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, the podcast in which we undertake the insert adjective here task of discussing in story order all of the Doctor Who novelizations. I'm joined by... Dalton Hughes. And by... Alison Fitzsafried. And we record our episodes twice a month. You're listening to the Video Junkyard Podcast. Enjoy your travels. They all say who. Hello, I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, host and producer of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcasts. Now that you're listening to a thorough discussion of random Doctor Who episodes, why not find them on the Target book range, or the hardcover, or anything else with Doctor Who? For all things Doctor Who collectibles, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and everywhere you find your Doctor Who podcasts. Also a proud member of the Doctor Who Podcast Alliance. You're listening to Police Box in a Junkyard Podcast. You ask him, he may show it. He simply asks.